0: Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a power
1: lifter, strength coach, and strength, yield and a bunch of other stuff.
0: Hey, this is
2: Dr. Mike Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and a bunch of other fun stuff.
0: All right, folks. We have... Um, Well, I'm going to be frank with you. With university starting, it's affecting all of us in different ways. I just heard you guys talking about that, by the way, when I was grabbing coffee. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, we have mail and news building up on us. So we're going to get through a couple of mails, some Facebook comments from our listener crew. Um, And then the news, there's sort of a a theme here, which which is almost like um, negativity. It's like paranoia. And we're gonna bring our usual sort of, you know, war scarred, salty veteran um viewpoint on this. I think we just need to pump the brakes a little bit on a lot of this stuff. So we're gonna talk about uh a lot of things that are it's controversial. Like first you hear it's not bad for you, then you hear it's oh it's it's terrible, you can't consume any any of it. You know, so we're gonna talk about some of that stuff, a little commentary. Yeah. Um Phil, but Let's let's start with like the direct lifting news. So you've got some cool stuff. Sure. Strength and muscle sport news.
1: Yeah. So I spent the weekend at. Well, there was two big meets this weekend. There was Bossa Bosses, and then I was down at the Tribute uh, IPL meet in San Antonio, Texas. So went down there. One of my lifters was lifting. Huge day. It was an invite only meet. A lot of cash given out. I'm trying to think. Just roughly. Uh, I think there was like fifty, sixty thousand given out total. Wow. Um, at least that, because um, you were looking at twelve thousand five hundred dollars for first place, man, and first place woman, four thousand for second, I think two thousand for third. But uh, on two days, so day one was classic RAW, which is raps. Day two is uh, the new RAW category, which is sleeves. But, uh, no, it's amazing lifts. And, again, like I've said before, it's the women. were <laughs> The women sold the show. Um, like I was talking to one of my other lifters, uh, Dal, and it's like the women's Wilks is now broken because they are just crushing. They're going to have to redo that thing. Um, they outlifted everybody. You're talking, like, mid-600 Wilkes going on uh, compared to, like— Compared to, like, uh, Brian, who did good, uh, my lifter, he took second. I think he had, like, a 555, Wilkes, well, after oh. squatting 8, what did he squat, 876, benched 507, and deadlifted 880. So, <laughs> wow, uh, yeah, it was good. But, I mean, it wasn't the day that we wanted. Um, a few things went on. I think, uh, obviously, Brian was really nervous, and I've never seen him this way. Mm -hmm. He's been in one big meet before, which was record breakers. But at that, it was pretty chill because there was no expectations. It was like, hey, this is my first big meet. I'm going to go out here and have fun. At this one, we had definite goals in mind, and there was $12,500 on the line. So (laughs) um, Brian's a trooper. He did good. We lowered his opener. We were going to open at 903. Uh, We went to 876, and uh, he messed up his first one. He came out there and didn't have his belt latched up, and like I said, nerves were just all over the place. Came back and crushed that, and then uh, took his third at 9.03 and, and just went way too low and missed that. But after that, we got him settled down, and for Brian, Brian's not a uh, he's not a hype, hype him up, lifter, smack him around, get him screaming and yelling. He's more of a he needs to be joking and laughing and messing with people. Mm-hmm to be in the right mind
0: like disengaged uh, maybe yeah a little bit. yeah
1: just having a good time like when he squatted 903 easy at the last meet literally he was up there on the platform waiting for them to load it you know, poking jokes and having fun with people and then just walked over and squatted like it was nothing and that's 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 where he needs to be um is in that zone and he was just he wasn't there he was being quiet and sitting by himself and uh so we got him loosened up after that and bench went amazing the whole prep had been kind of had to make some aches and pains and things weren't going well, so we opened light, but uh, hit five oh seven like it was nothing on bench. Uh, and at this point, now we're playing the numbers because we didn't get the squat we wanted, and uh, opened it like I said, eight eighty, I think it was on on deadlift, and uh, hit that fine, hit that easy, went to nine oh three, um, and got called on a, a soft lockout, a little bit of a controversial call. Basically, he, he stood up with it really fast and then rebent his knees a little bit after the lockout. Mm-hmm. Um, and they called it on that, which, I mean, it is one of the rules, so I'm not going get, to get it on them. You can obviously see there's a little knee bend. but uh, uh So they called on that, and then he was a little uh, – he tried to do something that you probably shouldn't do, and that's changed the way he lifts for his third attempt at a big meet with 900 pounds. And essentially he ended up trying to stiff a deadlift 903 pounds. Oh, <laughs> and, oh, and And that didn't work. So, anyways, it was a great day. You know, we got in the eyes of a lot of people, um, got to meet. Uh, I got to meet, like, C. C. Holcomb and things like that. People I hadn't met in person and, and talk a lot. Uh, and Brian ended up taking second. So, I mean, he still walked away with a... Uh, $4,000, and he was the heaviest squat of the day, heaviest deadlift of the day. Hey. Uh, he might have been the heaviest deadlift of the weekend, even, and, and squat of the weekend. So it turned a lot of heads, gained a lot of followers, so now it's move on, and we chalked that up as experience, you knowing a big meet, mm-hmm. um, and going for money, which is a more and more usual now, which is pretty awesome in powerlifting. Uh, like people were asking me, how much money did you compete for? I was like, Phew. <laughs> we competed for plastic trophies, bro this is this money thing is real new. You know, we didn't have any of that we you no know, right we yeah, com- we competed for bragging rights, so <laughs> uh it's neat, it's neat to see this. I mean, when somebody can come in and make Kevin Oak won twelve thousand five hundred dollars, you know oh, let's say he love it. rides on that and finds another one here in a couple months, and maybe he can win another twelve thousand. you do that four or five times a year, you got something going on so. Especially if you got sponsors backing you and like paying for travel and things,
0: like right, you would uh, make a living out of it almost, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there was a there was a one forty eighter. There was a one hundred forty eight pound man that deadlifted. Uh, he just missed six
2: thirty
1: three. Oh, uh, I think he hit six twenty. Wow, that was pretty amazing. There was a hundred eighteen pound girl that pulled over four hundred.
2: Oh, a
1: twelve oh, year old girl that deadlifted three fifteen a twelve
0: year old
1: girl uh, a little twelve year old girl that lifted three fifteen
0: <laughs> this is making me ashamed <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I mean there
1: were numerous girls in the six hundred polls um oh. it, was, it was yeah it was it was pretty amazing, um and like they were all squatting four hundred plus so wow. yeah it was pretty it was pretty legit, man, seeing seeing that go on the funniest part of the day, I don't know the guy's name. there were several lifters from out of the country there there was a Russian guy. In in our flight, he was a couple lifts before Brian, and he took his third deadlift and he starts yelling in Russian. Nah, 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 nah. And then nobody, of course, no one in the crowd knew what the hell he was. Doing. <laughs> so the announcer just takes it in his own hands and he said he loves he, he said he loves this country. I love America. <laughs> <laughs> he, he runs to the back room and starts throwing shit, and uh, everybody's cracking up. But uh, he just tried in light of the situation, you know. But uh, it was a good time. So, awesome. It was fun. It's neat to see these meets. It was very well ran. It went fast. We were done by started at nine, got done by three. Wow, nice. Um, yeah, it was very well ran. The crew down there uh, that runs uh, the Texas for uh, USPA and IPL did a really good job. You know, Phil, I mean, if I can had a, go ahead.
0: If I can ask, uh, that's got to mean better performances. You would think instead of dragging it out. Doesn't that make sense? Like, if you can wrap up by 3, you're going to get overall better work than if people are just strung out by, like, 6, 7 p.m. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And, I mean, you still had plenty of rest. I mean, like, they were only running two flights. But that still meant you had, like, on bench, in between squat and bench, they still gave us an extra 15, 20 minutes. So you still had an hour and a half, you know, in between each event to Mm -hmm. get rested a little bit, get something to eat, get warmed up. Um, and they were very lifter conscience I've been to meets where it's like okay we start in, uh, right after this flight's over and then you've got big guys like Brian and there were several guys there opening in the 800s um, it takes a while to get warmed up you know? mm-hmm. so they came back and checked on us and at one point they gave us an extra five minutes you know they wanted to make sure okay the, the situation's good for the lifters which makes sense to me as long as they're not being you know just outwardly taking their time and being assholes. It's
2: not like you're asking for another hour. You
1: know? No, it's like, it's five, five minutes. minutes. We're here all day. Give me five minutes. Let me yeah. take one more temp and we'll be ready to go. <laughs> so they were real good at that. Um, they had, they live streamed the whole thing. It was good. They brought in, it was at a hotel, but, uh, there was a freaking tractor trailer outside with a huge air conditioner on it, pumping air in there. Um, so they brought in like extra air conditioning. Oh, cool. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, it was awesome. Normally it's like hotter than hell in the back room. Ugh. Uh, so yeah, I mean it was a one of the best ran ran meets I've ever been to, and I've been to numerous worlds and things like that. So yeah, it was a good time. So and lots of big lifts, big lifts taken. So neat to see.
0: That's cool. Now how how raw was this? Like
1: well, like Brian's.
0: Well, Brian just, just was, I mean the, how you, when you are saying you are reading off some of those numbers, it just makes me wonder like w- what kind of gear did they have and all that kind of stuff. You know. Well, day
1: day two with the like the girl that. Deadlifted over 400 to 118, and the guy, they get a belt. Okay.
0: <laughs> that's it. I'm trying to save so, my
1: ego, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, there's no saving it. Day two was Brian lifts in sleeves only, so no wraps, no nothing. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, so it was yeah, it was legit. So
0: <laughs> Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, just a, just a belt and a singlet. Uh, Sorry, yeah. Lonnie. Uh, yeah, right.
0: Sorry <laughs> to say, this is all, like, raw. <laughs> this is yeah, real. There was some <laughs>
1: impressive lifts. I mean, there was a guy that's... I think if, I don't remember his bench exactly, but it was around four seventy at two twenty um big tall kid he wasn't like one of those spark plugs that's just jacked, you know that's five six and two twenty
0: yeah, you know um, you often hear people say well the arc the arc when they bench is is like two inches, well, not for that yeah, guy no, this right guy
1: was yeah this guy was just, he he was very much out benching what he looked like um so yeah, it was impressive and I think fun, he though. pulled in the sevens, so
0: um
1: yeah it was a good time. Good time.
0: love it. Good stuff. Did you pick up anything? I mean I mean, you've done this many, many times, but big numbers, efficient meat, anything for like uh an event organizer like tidbits i mean I guess the truck with the a c was a cool little trick, but that yeah, was- just
1: that I mean, I think one of the best things about it I mean, I really like these meats that are thrown at hotels because basically you go upstairs and sleep and then you just come downstairs. Mhm. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. It's right there. Um, it was a nice hotel, and they, you know, everything was in one spot. I mean, if you needed to, you could have not left the hotel. Um, so that's nice as a lifter. You know, you don't have to wake up and then travel across town and then do this and then oh, you know, I need to get my stuff out of my room before it closes. Blah 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 blah. blah.
0: Right. Well, you know, while the event right? is held at like a high school or something. Yeah. Right. So I mean, that was
1: nice, and just the way they ran it, it was good feed, um, and just very efficiently ran. They had good helpers. I think the best meets always have extra help. You know, you don't don't plan on 10 guys showing up to help when you need 10. You know, you better have 15 So So, <laughs> yeah. uh, like
2: things like that.
1: It, it, the warm-up equipment was spot on. Um, so, that was yeah. a good time.
2: To so work the drive. So warm-up areas, they throw like, you know, 100 people into the small room with like two bars and be like, have fun.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, they didn't try to overpack this thing. So, a lot of meets is three true. or four flights. They just broke it down to two flights each day. So, I mean, both days were done by three, which was kind of nice. You know? mm-hmm. Good stuff. So I've been at meets where it's okay. It's 1030 at night, and we're freaking finally deadlifting. <laughs> but oh. uh,
0: Yeah. yeah. So. If you want performances to boast about, you know, and then carry on the the meet, right? I mean, better performances, people are more excited to come back next year, and, yeah. you know, then do it efficiently, and don't just um, destroy your athletes with inefficient, you know, scheduling and stuff programming yeah
1: i mean hopefully they can keep this going and like i said this was an invite only meet because it was a international meet but uh Mm
0: -hmm. it was fun time good stuff all right um let's get into some listener mails i have some we'll start with a light one and then i've got sort of a a heavy one um a a friend of mine contacted me dave he's he knows fortress really well um but let me start with the lighter one here, and we can answer some of these questions. We'll do a little bit of the Facebook stuff, and then after the break, we'll talk about all these, all these concerns that are in the news, I guess, um, <laughs> changing public opinion with one comment kind of thing. But um, this one is Matt. He says, hey, love your show. Uh, thanks for reading my email on Iron Radio the other day. Uh, I've got an exercise physiology question for you. And I think any of us could answer this, but um, two days ago on a lark, I decided to take the stairs uh, down from my office on the 58th floor. No problem at the time. Now I'm damn near an invalid from the doms in my calves. (laughs) Far worse than anything I've experienced even after 10 sets of heavy calf raises. What's going on here? Was this effectively like a thousand negatives? Um, I, I, let me take the first stab at this. We just did, <laughs> we're setting up our first lab in an advanced ex phys class, and it's about eccentric contractions, right? Lengthening, breaking contractions, and DOMS, right? Delayed onset muscle soreness, and what happens and all that. The short answer, Matt, yes, you did a thousand negatives <laughs> with your body weight, right? And you are wrecked. The neat thing about eccentric exercise, and I did my dissertation with this stuff. And, again, we all know this, but when you lengthen, lengthen contractions, you fire motor units a little bit differently. You know, So oftentimes there's fewer fibers taking the load. Um, the initial mechanical trauma, it, it does happen, but you don't feel it right away because there's sort of a second more metabolic phase where you get like neutrophils move in uh, almost immediately like white blood cells. And they start secreting you know, cytokines and things like that. They're soldiers, right? I mean, neutrophils and later uh, you get like uh, other white blood cells move in like monocytes and macrophage. They become macrophages. There's a lot to this, but your white blood cells are a big part of muscle remodeling. And there is this second phase. It's, it seems ironic, but your body actually induces some of the damage itself later because of the response. So it's not just the immediate mechanical response. There's a metabolic phase to this. The good news is all those soldiers, those white blood cells that normally protect you from bacteria, things like that, viral infections, although that's a different ballpark right now. But the soldiers become medics, you know, and they can secrete growth factors and help with tissue turnover and all that kind of stuff. So the inflammatory phase and then, you know, it's part of the the growth response and uh, – so, yeah, you you did a thousand negatives essentially. Um, I don't know. Mike, did you want to add anything to that?
2: No, I just had a question for you. Um, is there anything, because I've thought about this too, with uh, so Cal Dietz will use like a triphasic training where you'll emphasize an eccentric portion of the exercise for a week or two. Um, do you think there's anything that's useful to do in that case? So, like in the listener's question, now that he's so or or, you know, that you're going to do some eccentric work on purpose in terms of recovery or supplements or anything that may help that process.
0: Well, we're going to touch on this after the break, because there's some news that uh, NSAIDs like ibuprofen, aspirin, right. because they interfere with the some of the neutrophils getting down in there, they interfere with the inflammatory process. They might actually hamper gains. Um, in fact, Jörn Trommelin was just tweeting about this. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> save that till after the break, but the point is you just killing the pain you know with an analgesic med, like over the counter med, is not going to like help really other than right. just make it not hurt. Honestly, Matt, I I like to be sore. To me that's growth. I know it doesn't correlate exactly with all the different markers of recovery, the soreness, but uh take it for what it is. And maybe that's You know, that's the kind of thing it it kind of emphasizes to me why you change up your stimuli every once in a while. You know, if all you do is like seated calf raises and you're focused on the soleus, something like that, then, you know, doing stairs is is a different ballpark. You know, you might activate, I don't know, your gastroc or some of the, you know, assisting muscles and that kind of stuff. Um, Just take it for the growth that it is. You know, Uh, all I can really say is um, feed the muscles the next day, you know. Protein, carbs, fats, whatever—energy and protein, essentially. Um, I think there might be something to curcumin, you know, as a mild anti-inflammatory kind of thing that might not interfere. Fish oils, maybe. Mike, you and I saw in Spain about how yeah. the, the fish oils, right? They they don't affect the resolution. Ultimately, they can help with parts. They can calm parts of this over-aggressive inflammatory process. Because Matt, I bet you you're going to concur. This is this feels over-aggressive. Like you're wrecked. I know what it's like. We all know what that's like, you know, using a handrail to get up and down stairs the next day, stuff like that. So um,
2: I think in that talk, too, they talked about possibly combining aspirin and not NSAIDs or acetaminophen for different resolution of that part because the
0: drugs were affecting a different portion of that resolution, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right. Exactly. The aspirin, actually, what I remember, seemed to be less interfering um, right. than ibuprofen, which is you know really strong. Although I know Phil for years has, has used ibuprofen. I have too. Um, let's save that for after the break, though, because this study that just came out exactly deals with this. So, oh. um, But, yeah, um, that's what happened. It was just a, a novel stimulus, and it is an eccentric stimulus. And, of course, lengthening contractions like that is what makes you sore. In my dissertation, I ran people downhill, uh, a steep downhill grade on a treadmill for 45 minutes. And they were ruined. I mean, ruined. Uh, so, uh, that was the lighter one. Let me go on to the harder one because I want to hear what you guys have to say about this. Let me open this up here. So, he says, um, This is uh, Dave. He says, Thanks for getting back to me. Sorry, this is the reason I'm reaching out. But basically, I've been avoiding spinal fusions and bracing. Um, and he's trying to use diet and exercise and rest. He's got some back problems, um, trying to avoid having surgeries until it's absolutely necessary, trying to avoid really strong pain meds, you know, like that he says, his, um, uh, pain management doctor is a pussy. <laughs> so he's just trying to <laughs> give him too many, you know, um, palliatives maybe. Um, he said a former colleague had mentioned maybe trying even to, um, work with a doctor and get on growth hormone to help his back degeneration. So he's got degenerated uh, discs and things like that. Um, He says, at this point, I'm just researching everything uh, I can. You know, can you give me any tips? And I just said off the top of my head, I've had two former students actually get stem cell therapy for disc degeneration. And I know that's, uh, I don't know all of the problems that Dave is having, but uh, they have remarkable Results Now, Dave's got some scoliosis and things like that. And I think it's important to know that that lateral curvature of your spine, when it gets to a certain degree, you know, advancement, severity, it becomes progressive. uh, And physical therapists know that. So I think he's trying to prevent this, right, from progressing to a more and more curved spine, you know, more and more back problems. If I remember right, Dave... Um, and you can email me later and correct me, but I think some of your initial injuries were, you were doing really heavy bent rows. Um, but again, that was back in the day. So Dave did get back and say, I had stem cell injections in 2015 and I concur. Uh, it was the best thing I've done so far. Hmm. Uh, Mike, what do you think? So he's chronic back problems, scoliosis, um, you know, um, intervertebral disc degeneration, you know a lot. You did a lot of cadaver work, right? You've seen this for real up uh, close. Any thoughts for Dave? Um,
2: yeah, a couple of things. Um, I mean, I have my scoliosis is pretty good now, but I had very major scoliosis as a kid. In my case, or one thing I always tell people to look at or at least get screened for is there's probably something that may be uh, driving that. And in my case, it was my eye position. So my red eye sits up and out farther I don't see in 3D. I had a <clears throat> lazy eye as a kid and a whole bunch of stuff. So what happens in some of those cases is your body will basically kind of wind around the way your vision is because we're very vision uh, driven in general. So you know, <clears throat> seeing like a functional neurologist or even a behavioral optometrist may be worth a screening just to see if there's anything going on there that may be driving it. Mm. Um, that's a little bit kind of out of the box, but I've I've seen that more often than not. So if I have someone come in who's got you know pretty big scoliosis, has, has some pain, obviously physical therapy, stuff like that can be good. But it's amazing, anecdotally, how many of them have been found to have some pretty wonky visual stuff that they they don't know about, right? Because if if you've had it your entire life, it's like being colorblind. And you know, what's the color purple? I don't know. I've never seen purple. I don't know what it looks like. Interesting, <laughs> right? Yeah you have nothing to compare it to per se. Um, so outside of that, I mean, you know, obviously Stu McGill's got a lot of good stuff. I mean, picking up one of his books is probably worthwhile. Um, if you talk to him about it, he's very big that surgery is definitely kind of a, a last resort. If you look at the data on surgery, eh, I would say it's not super promising overall. Um, and then just from an exercise standpoint, focusing on are there certain things you can do and then how do you feel after them and for me i noticed the more oddball looking the exercise and almost the more asymmetric it is the better i feel and the better my movement was so if you're pretty asymmetric to begin with symmetric exercise especially heavy loaded stuff may not be your best friend right because you're kind of pushing you back into those compensations and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, for a while, like, I only did heavy Turkish get-ups on my left side, like, for two and a half years. And my right side didn't get any weaker. But every time I did them for a period of time, I felt a little bit better. Um, So I would look at even something just kind of skewing stuff, maybe even one direction on the body for a while, um, and see how that goes.
0: Okay. Uh, Phil, I mean yes. you know back problems are so common uh how do you deal with that I mean you must have come across some of your your guys either come to you with problems or you know i mean w- w- what do you do
1: yeah i have i have a I deal with it fairly often I got one guy right now that he played college football and of course because of that I mean high school football wrestling on college wrestling everything else um it has a degenerative disc issue a lot of it that we end up working on is bracing things, um, learning how to brace correctly, and getting—I hate to use the term—but uh, you know, bringing core strength up to par. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whatever you can to protect that spine. So, okay. um, I end up doing lots of like uh, yoke walks and farmers carries and things like that. The loaded carries and things like that tend to force you in a correct posture position uh, without even thinking about it when you're moving. When yeah. you you won't move with load in a, in a incorrect position generally. Uh, and you will with like a squat, something that's static. Okay, uh, a lot of yeah. people overarch their lumbar and things like that. Yeah. So we end up doing a lot of core core work, um, and just relearning moves, you know, learning how to brace correctly, uh, start a step one, you know, lower the reps. Like I got one, one, uh, female that's a really high level now, but we just won't go above like three reps. Because form starts being, it could potentially be an issue. And it's not worth that issue. I would rather see like 10 sets of three. So, yeah, and we can get the same work in if we have an existing issue, things like that. But uh, generally a lot of just relearning and core work. So, mm-hmm. if we have a back issue going on.
0: Dave, I think, I mean, also, no, and and he knows this, Dave's a smart guy. We're not medical doctors either, yeah. right? So, I mean, when Phil's Phil's explaining what he does from a strength perspective, right, so trying to correct some of these problems. But you also, I mean, I don't know. I, I got to think you could also farm around. You know, we're fans on this show of, you know, farming around people who are willing to try something, you know, new or progressive, you know. Uh, he had mentioned anabolic hormones and things like that. I mean <laughs> – this is just anecdotal, but I've talked to a lot of high-end bodybuilders, and I can almost guarantee that their massive, you know, the strength of their soft tissue and all that stuff in place, it, it does pay dividends, you know. Oh, yeah. um, but having said that, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really comment is any beyond that. But, yeah, some type of, I mean, if let's say, for example, you're low testosterone over a very long period of time, you know, that's going to take a toll on your soft tissues and stuff like that eventually. So, um, yeah, Yeah. good luck to you. One other
2: thing I always have people ask their orthopedic, because orthopedics in general, just by their nature, tend to be very conservative. I mean, Phil can probably speak to this more Mm -hmm. than I. Is if I continue to do this, am I going to make anything worse? Right? So if I take a period of, say, six months and I try some other stuff, am I going to be so wrecked that you're not going to be able to fix anything? Or... Am I just going to have six months of potential pain, and I'm not going to be any worse if you had to do a joint replacement or if you had to do something else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that gives them an idea of what time frame they have to play with. Because if the doc says, "No, man, if, if you continue to do stuff, you're going to shred everything so bad it's going to be a real bitch to fix." Okay, yeah. not that much time. But if he's yeah. like, "Yeah, yeah, six months or whatever," you're probably not going to make it any worse than what it is now. Yeah. That gives a person kind of a rough time frame. Know, okay, I can do something for six months, and in the worst case, I could have it replaced, or I could
0: do something more invasive at that point. It makes sense. That sounds like Phil's yeah, scenario, sure. right? Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: exactly like it. But I mean, I'm always a fan of do whatever you can and not go under the knife. Yeah. You know, if possible. You want to keep your original equipment as long as possible.
2: So
0: Agreed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even this tooth surgery I had, you know, they essentially, they put like a it looks like a drywall anchor you know up into my maxillary bone like all the way up behind my nose I didn't want to have this done this is just this is bullshit you know this I keep fussing about this retainer i'm I'm trying to speak through and stuff and you know but anyway i i I'm permanently different. I can tell it's different, and we can all speak to that right once you have a serious surgery yeah. it, at least in my experience you're look if you're eighty percent happy with it, then that's probably good right you're never going to go back to what exactly how you were before the problem you know uh surgeries leave you changed so i, I agree with with dave's idea of you know let's i don't want to just go in there and get have some serious hardware put in yeah you know so okay um i know there were some questions on on facebook i've actually got one of them here on my phone let's take a look here um Phil, you had replied to this one. This was from Camille, I think. I think this may have been discussed in the past, but I don't remember. Uh, I'm having trouble reaching my daily protein target. As cla- I'm a classic carbivore, so she likes her carbs. <laughs> um, if I take into account the protein I'm getting from carbs, you know, like what's, what's in the oats and the bread and that kind of stuff, uh, I hit my daily target easily. But if I only count high-quality protein sources – like meat eggs dairy, I usually fall short of the gram per pound when tracking protein what counts for you guys in terms of daily intake uh, now Phil you responded to that what did you what did you say to her
1: Let's pretty much if you're getting a mixed diet is what I told her then you're good I mean she's got a good portion of it coming from meat and dairy so uh, go ahead and count the you know the the beans and the rice and things like that as long as it, you know good part of it the, the where I'd start to worry is if everything was coming from veg. then you need to be a little more wary of like you talk about all the time, mixing rice and beans and, the, right. and this and that. But I mean, totally agree. Yeah. She's probably not missing anything. If she's getting, let's say 70% of just yeah, hell, even 60% of it's coming from meat and dairy. Right. Yeah.
0: You know, As I recall, you said so, something about, you're not going to be missing any particular amino acid, you know, yeah, because exactly. you've got the That's high quality mixed in. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so let's pretend, and I don't know how big she is, but let's pretend she's like, I don't... I'm just do this on the top of my head. Let's say Camille weighs 140 pounds. That could be way wrong. <laughs> so I don't know, like low 140. So 60 kilo person, right? The literature is going to say 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kg. So let's take that 1.2, the low end, because she's you know, struggling to get that gram per pound, at least of real high quality stuff. So 72 grams of protein a day is essentially what uh, the literature would suggest for her and she's getting that right um i always of course i always count like seven grams of protein in a serving of pasta right that's gluten right it's in fact we're going to talk about that in the news after the break a little bit but yes i count that yes i count the five grams of protein from oats um because exactly to your point phil You mix it all in with all of the high-quality, complete proteins, you know. uh, Absolutely, you would would count that. Uh, Mike, I don't know what you think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I generally agree with that. I mean, I've done both approaches. So if I have a new client and I know that it's going to be a little bit harder for them to make some nutritional changes, and I'm looking at their recall and their protein is just super low. I had a client like this just last week. Um, and I know that the rest of their lifestyle is busy and I'm doing their training, so I'm having them change all of that, I may say like, hey, just get four meals, 30 grams of protein at each meal and have that come from a complete source, right? So have you know chicken, fish, blah, 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 whatever, knowing that they're gonna get over that amount once they add up everything else, but I'm just purposely kind of having to <laughs> focus only on that one thing. What if I have someone who's you know, a little bit more experience and they're you know, tracking their macros or keeping track, And yeah, I'm just going to take whatever their, their total is. And if, if you're trying to hit a high total with like beans and rice, ugh, just really not going to happen in the real world. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, count it all. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And don't feel bad. In fact, you talked about like a little more advanced idea. If you have access to body composition equipment and you can actually figure out your, your fat-free mass... Some people might even eat grams of protein per pound or per kilo of fat-free mass because that's what Mm -hmm. you're trying to feed. But, yeah, these are kind of nuances, right? I I like just like the, you know, try to get yourself in that range just of overall body weight, you know, mix in the high-quality stuff, count all of it. That's sort of the short answer, yeah. And most of the data, as you know, Lonnie, if,
2: unless you're really skewed on the end of the spectrum in terms of body size yeah, body weight and lean mass weight you could they're kind of almost interchangeable in terms of counting number of grams of protein but yeah. i agree that it's especially if you're you know 300 pounds and you're quite a bit overweight then yeah you're probably not going to need 300 grams and then lean body mass is going to be much more useful then
0: mm-hmm. right no that's right all right um one last little tidbit before we go to break and then we're going to talk about some of this you know almost negativity you know don't do this and oh my gosh don't do that um and we're going to get some practical input on it but something that i that's going on with me right now is i'm i'm finally using some hrv stuff myself mike so i decided to start you know looking at this stuff um my interest in this is not in just training load, right? Because so many of those devices, of course, are sold. If your HRV starts to go down, right, and you you start to tank, it's because you're overtraining. I'm interested in the more almost raw data, if you will, and looking at sympathetic drive, period, you know, and especially what different stimulants will do. So as we speak right now, I, I got my HRV this morning, which, by the way, you really got to follow what the app has you do with the breathing and, and calm down because I actually just stood up and I, di- I kind of ignored the breathing part my, <laughs> and my HRV was 66. I'm like, oh man, I did have some alcohol yesterday and that's going to be in the news, by the way. Uh, maybe that's doing it because I know you said that'll really lower your numbers uh, but then I sat down and I, I calmed down and I breathed with you know the device in and out because it, that matters and it was 89 so Uh-oh. that's a that that's a big difference, you know between those two things, but anyway, the point being is i'm I'm still interested in acutely can I affect those numbers if we can do all these control issues the best we can be as strict we can um you know, does having two cups of strong coffee or a caffeine pill doesn't do anything to it immediately acutely? That's kind of where I'm headed with a lot of this stuff. I think it's gonna be a fun thing, like so r- long story short. <laughs> right now, this morning, I'm doing a little experiment. Does podcasting and lots of coffee <laughs> lower my HRV? So, it, Just kind of a, a neat, different approach to that. I know I'm pushing the envelope with that, and that's not what it's commercialized to do, but uh, I'll let everybody know. Yeah, well, oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, and we're collecting data on that, too, right? As you know, Mike, that, that we're going to yeah. continue that little project, too. Uh, so,
2: Stuff with coffee on that is... Super interesting because I'd be interested once you have all the data collected to just even an anecdotal pilot thing of what do people habitually use coffee for in terms of like a lifestyle? Are they just using it to relax on a Sunday morning? Or are they using it typically before lifting? And if those things kind of fall out of the data in any form.
0: Oh, uh, to that point, I'll share it next week. But A paper came out almost identically. With what we're doing it's actually looking at does your stimulant intake from monster and especially coffees and pills or or pre-workouts does it agitate you does it increase your movement right uh and it just came out and it addressed what in it in literally uh yesterday (laughs) yesterday it came out uh you couldn't even access it until yesterday a student of mine found it it's almost identical to what we're doing and it addresses some of what you just said mike like for what reasons were they doing this Yeah, uh, because it is a neat idea, right? If you if the stimulants help you move that little bit more, that extra rep in the gym, uh, you know, walk all the way around the block to get somewhere, you know, whatever it is, more activity generally considered kind of good, unless you're moving around and fidgeting at night, of course, while you're trying to sleep. But so uh, yeah, I'll keep people uh, posted on that too. Just kind of fun stuff. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a lot of things that lifters are exposed to and we're now being told they're bad. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated Uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? Um, We're going to talk about several things. Here's the quick rundown, uh, if you're interested. One is on NSAIDs, like ibuprofen and aspirin. One is coconut oil. Uh, One is alcohol uh, in the news. And the last is gluten. So all of these things are getting some negative attention, and people are either trying to fix this quote-unquote bad thing, uh, or just warn people not to touch it, (laughs) and We've all been exposed to all these things, of course, listeners and the co-hosts. Let me start with this first one. This was promulgated on Twitter. It's entitled, Analgesic and Anti-Inflammatory Drugs in Sports, Implications for Exercise Performance and Training Adaptations, or if you prefer, Gains. Um, So Lundberg and Howitzen were the authors on this paper. It says over-the-counter analgesics such as anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs uh, are widely consumed by athletes worldwide to increase pain tolerance, dampen pain, and reduce inflammation from injuries. It says NSAIDs have been demonstrated to inhibit cyclooxygenase or COX activity. So that's an enzyme that builds uh, prostaglandin E2, for example. Uh, which might explain the reduced anabolic response to exercise bouts. It says consistent with this, NSAIDs, and again, we're talking about aspirin, ibuprofen, things like that, have been reported to interfere with muscle hypertrophy and interfere with strength gains in response to chronic resistance training in young individuals. But then they go on to say it remains to be established whether any of these observations really translate into detriments in performance or reduced training adaptations in elite athletes. Uh, now, this brings to mind, Phil, you and I both like our ibuprofen <laughs> over the years. Are you still using ibuprofen regularly, and what are your thoughts? I can't think you're going to say that this is going to stop any muscular or strength progress.
1: I'll be taking 800 milligrams of ibuprofen right after the show. <laughs>
0: so. There you go. <laughs> um uh,
1: what I would say is show me an elite strength athlete that never takes it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably can't. Yeah. And they're all pretty big. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. from what I've seen in the real world, that doesn't pan out. Most elite athletes. And I, you know, I can't speak personally on like NFL, Major League Baseball, hockey, but I guarantee you the majority of them are taking something along the lines of this. Mm-hmm. Just to battle daily, you know, aches some pains. So, yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it may look good in that lab, but in the real world, it's just not
0: reality. So. I I can't I can't help but think this is what Nick Bird would say that acutely. Yes, they suppress protein synthesis, but he even suggests, and he's not the only one. Some of those Canadian guys are suggesting it, ibuprofen might actually be an, a mild anabolic agent in that it temporarily suppresses protein synthesis, but then cells have a natural corrective rebound. You know what? What got me about this one though is it's not just the acute. They're actually suggesting, you know, um, interfere with hypertrophy and strength gains in in response to chronic training in young yeah. individuals. And then, but then again, they say that hasn't been really panned out in elite athletes. Well, um,
1: just for the fact that it allows you to train at the level you need to, one would think it, it's beneficial. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Like I can go in today and I can squat four oh five, or I can take my eight hundred milligrams of average Buffin and I can go in there and squat seven.
0: Right. And that's <laughs> you know, gotta add up, so, right? Yeah, that's yeah. gonna add up over time. So, yeah. So uh Mike, any any cellular comments on this or Yeah, it's I definitely want to
2: read that study. It sounds fascinating. I've I've kinda gone back and forth on this over the years, so initially I was like, ah, I don't think there's much that's gonna screw up with the training adaptation chronically, I think there's definitely things that'll dampen it and possibly change it a little bit. But if you go back to like the super early mouse studies, if you provided enough overload, I mean, they put them on low-protein diets, they castrated them, they cut out their hypothalamus, they, they did all this stuff. And of course, this is a model where the front limbs are massively overloaded. They pull up their little tail and they walk around on their front limbs all day. And in short, there wasn't anything they could do to them that would completely ameliorate the strength and hypertrophy response from that chronic loading model. Um, different things would help, right? So if you gave more protein, that definitely helps, but nothing would drive it to basically zero. Um, there is some very acute data showing that, yep, NSAIDs do seem to mess with those pathways. Um, the one part that still sticks out to me is I saw um, Dr. Trappi present on this in a 2010 at ACSM in Seattle. And at that time, everyone was kind of in agreement that, yep, NSAIDs, they're really bad. They're going to screw with all your gains. And basically, they did a study in older people. And at the end of the study, they basically found that NSAIDs were mildly anabolic. And he was presenting saying that they thought they screwed up the data or they weren't compliant. And they actually had the subjects film themselves taking the medication. So they went back and they reviewed everything, went through the whole data again and compliance was actually super high, and they couldn't find anything where they screwed up. But as we know, the muscle adaptations, resistance training are different in older people than they are young people, possibly anabolic resistance, different things like that. So I don't know. It's, it's yeah. kind of where I'm at now. I mean, if I have an athlete, I would tell them. Me personally I try to avoid them as much at all possible, and that's for multiple reasons, but... I don't know i get nervous about anytime somebody says x y or z will completely blunt adaptations to strength training yeah maybe they'll change it a little bit but ah, that's just such a, a powerful stimulus that if your body wants to survive that you know in phil's case 700 pound squat we better do a lot of remodeling because damn it he's going to go back in the gym and do that thing again <laughs>
0: yeah uh I want to point out. I'm, I'm going to point people to this. This is Scandinavian Journal of Med Sci Sports. Uh, the work Lundberg is from the Karolinska Institute, right? So this is hardcore. You know, yeah. this is not just fly by night stuff. And yet, I agree with Phil 100. You know, my entire life I have used ibuprofen more or less in anti-inflammatory doses, not just a little 200 milligrams, but you know, I'll take six or 800 milligrams sometimes with an aspirin, um, and when I was trying to get larger, I, I did get larger, you know. I mean, so I don't think I would have been 5'9 and weighed almost 230 pounds if that stopped it, right, because I was, that, I was all about that stuff. So I, when the rubber hits the road, I don't think that's going to happen, and, and, of course, the guys Phil, Phil and the guys he works with are much larger than that, and if it stopped any kind of strength or muscle gains in its tracks – the, you wouldn't see what you see in the gyms and on the competitive platforms.
1: Yeah, the practitioners, we would know it by now. Right. And we wouldn't be using them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. If they're that high of an effect yeah. size, yeah. we would see pretty clear evidence with all the lifters that people have been interacting with and something that is relatively, I'd say, commonplace. It, yeah. So that yeah. tells you yeah. maybe there's an effect that's just a lot smaller than, than what we think there is or maybe there isn't an effect.
0: Yeah, and it okay. seems there might be population specificity here again. There's a lot more to this abstract and this article. Please go look if you're really interested in this, listeners. But um, there seems to be population specificity. Like it might, they're suggesting. I think it might be more interfering in, in youth, you know, or younger, more naive trainers as opposed to the elite ones, you know. And to be fair, it may be the case that uh, Phil and the the guys that he trains and a lot of the bodybuilders I've seen. Maybe they could have been a couple of percent larger or stronger had they not done it. It's hard to really tease that one apart, so it's worth to go, you know, go look at the literature. But i I'm in, of course, they talk about a risk to benefit analysis in this, and that's that's what everybody's going to have to decide for themselves, I guess. You know, if you're getting more out of it than losing a couple of percent gains, um, and ultimately, you actually have you have gains because of them, right? Because you were able to control pain. I, I, I can't say that's just, just a bad thing. Like I said, there is this sort of negativity th- that runs throughout a lot of this news. Um, now we're running low on time. So the next one was partly through the Facebook page. This was also uh labroots.com is coconut oil. Really all that Brenda Kelly Kim wrote this. It says coconuts often praised, you know, as a superfood in the veggie world. Um, appreciated for health benefits, nutritional value, but recently, uh, Karen Michaels, uh, the director of the Institute for Prevention and Tumor Epidemiology at the University of Freiburg and professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, has basically called it poison. In, In fact, quote, pure poison, close quote, um... And I, a lot of it has to do with the idea that it's saturated fat, much like butter or lard, you know, and that could be, that could be related to things like stroke or heart disease. Um, and a lot of people are suddenly saying, from this comment, right, from this researcher's comment, uh, oh, well, I guess it's bad. Uh, now, I don't think anybody's going to tell you that, that coconut oil has saturated fat, and it can, in fact, raise your LDL, your quote-unquote bad cholesterol, on some level. Um, However, it's shorter chain, right? It's medium chains. I I always consider coconut oil poor man's MCT oil, right? Because it's medium chain fats, not traditional long chain fatty acids like you see uh, in a lot of dietary fats. In fact, 60% uh, of coconut oil is medium chain and you digest and absorb that differently. There's some suggestion that you might not even store it as fat quite as much, those medium chain type fats. Um, But we've known this forever, in in my opinion, and then, you know, that it's saturated fat and it may raise your LDL a little bit. Um, To me, my my conclusion on this is, well, meh, uh, you know. I mean, if, if you're chugging it or eating it by the spoonful every day as your only fat source, only calorie source... Well, just be aware that it's saturated fat, and it may raise your LDL. But uh, what do you think, Mike?
2: Yeah, it's just the whole thing of anything that's negative seems to get real popular in the media, like, super fast. And it's usually anything that goes against what everyone currently believes. So if you go back, you know, however many years saying that coconut oil is a healthy fat, people kinda of would lose their minds. Now they're like, ah, coconut oil is really not that bad. And so now we're back to someone stating the same thing again, but a public opinion has kind of changed, so now it's contradictory again and Yeah, I'm I haven't found anything that they did or any data that would tell me I need to change my mind or consider changing my mind, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Phil, do you get you get your fats just from Meats essentially, or uh, oils? Are you? Do you have any concern about sat fat? How do you approach all that?
1: Uh, I mean, we add butter to things. Like we use grass fed butter. We'll use that. Uh, no, we eat a lot of saturated fat. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's primary, yeah, <laughs> primarily primarily it what we add is saturated fat.
0: <laughs> so, so there it is. Yep. <laughs> I think I you know. Yes, nobody's going to say that the at least I'm not going to say the lipid theory of heart disease is completely bunk, you know, and that cholesterol levels have, don't matter at all. Honestly, there's some very interesting data um, that in existence, and we've talked about this before. Uh, Steve Reichman, I think, did some of this stuff when I, a little bit at, when he was at Kent State and then later at Texas, I think. But there's even some beneficial things to having cholesterol levels in a certain range instead of just trying to drive them rock bottom all the time. Um, Yes. Cholesterol is a known driver, right? Of atherosclerosis and that kind of thing. And saturated fat could raise it, but then it's, you always get this confusing stuff, right? I I, I guess my, my message to listeners is this is a complicated issue and it's not as simple as, Oh, it's sat fat. All sat fats do the exact same things to your body and it's all bad. No, it's not. Um, And yet, yeah, there's pros and cons like anything else. You know, uh, Stu Phillips just tweeted this past week about how there are some uh, detrimental effects of saturated fat on liver function, you know, things like that, uh, according to some new research. So, you know, um, you you can't live in a world where you're running from frickin' everything, you know. Um, Don't you dare touch aspirin or ibuprofen. Don't eat any saturated fat. Don't, don't, don't. These avoidance strategies drive me nuts, you know. And like you said, Mike, the, the negativity bias is what people seem to gravitate to in the news,
2: um, and real quickly on that, I've often wondered if someone's baseline metabolism is just at rest, they're burning more carbohydrates, they're not having as much of the fatty acid turnover, so maybe if you provide a surplus of saturated fat, maybe it's possibly bad in that population versus, you know, someone else who's good at using fat at rest, they're burning through a lot of that as fuel and it doesn't get pushed off into other tissues then, so maybe that may be something that may throw a monkey wrench into it and make it more complicated than this or that is just
0: good or bad. Right. Even genetics for how you, how you respond to fats, you know, there's right. definitely a nutrigenetic thing with fats. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that, that further, further clouds the issue, you know, definitely. Um, <laughs> um, all right, two more real quick, uh, is alcohol unsafe in any amount? This is also Brenda Kelly through lab roots. Um, This, you know, she goes on, she says, a glass of red wine is good for you, we hear, or beer makes you smart. There's all these claims from various clinical studies on alcohol, but the latest research on alcohol published in The Lancet, which is a very high-tier journal, suggests there is no safe amount of alcohol, as in none. So uh, it basically says, how can this be? Uh, They talk about a new study, uh, big data, looking at millions of people. And how they've died from various causes. It says one of the statistics uncovered is that males aged 15 to 49, 12% of their deaths were due to alcohol use, um, linked to alcohol use. Uh, Dr. Emanuela Gakadau of the Institute for Health Metrics, University of Washington, is a senior author of this work. She explained, quote, the health risks associated with alcohol are massive. Our findings are consistent with other research. Uh, and she believes it's clear and convincing the the correlations there. Now, again, the key word being correlations, right? This isn't necessarily cause, causal. It's big population stuff, but it is suggestive. Anyway, correlations between drinking and premature death, cancer, and cardiovascular problems. Uh, and then goes on to say zero alcohol consumption is what would minera- minimize the risk. Uh, It it also goes on to say that um, the study did not distinguish between beer, wine, or spirits. The common denominator was, of course, the ethanol. Um, They defined a drink as 10 grams of uh, alcohol per person per day. Uh, That amounts to a 3.5-ounce glass of wine, a standard can or bottle of beer, or a one-ounce shot of whiskey. Uh, And then there's some other uh, comments in here from other researchers explaining how extensive this data set was and this data analysis um they talk about compilation of hundreds of studies both prospective and retrospective studies uh and then it goes on to point at news sources university of washington and the lancet uh again you know i occasionally have a drink i did yesterday um Phil, I know that you'll sometimes have a little bit of, you know, you're like, I don't know, what is it? What did you drink? Brown, so kind of brown liquor. When I came out, oh. when, when I came out and, and we we did a little um, thing for Strength Guild, I remember we actually yeah. sat around, I think we were nipping on whiskey while we were discussing yeah. it. You yeah, know,
1: we'll have whiskey or this or that. I'm not a big drinker. You know, we'll go have a drink at dinner here and there, maybe once or twice a week. Yeah. But I, yep. I don't think that's going to set you back. I think if you are a habitual, you know, alcoholic or something, yeah, of course. Right. I mean, you're going to have issues, but yep. nobody's arguing that. But I think sitting down to a drink here and there isn't going to hinder anything at all. Yeah. So.
0: Well, I was Mike. I was just discussing with you. Now you said it'll it'll really lower your HRV numbers. The funny thing is, you have an alcohol uh, alcoholic drink or two to relax, and it could actually worsen your recovery score on like HRV. Can you comment on that at all? Or
2: yeah. So what I've seen with that after looking at. Christ, probably in the thousands of HRVs on people now over the last uh, eight-ish years, six years at least, um, one drink for most people, I won't see it in their score. Um, some people, right around two drinks, a lot of times I will. Uh, three drinks, definitely. And it's funny because I'll see HRV looks good, training volume, everything looks good. I'll see their HRV tank, and it took me a a while to figure out. So now the first question I'll ask them is, did you drink it all last night? Because I don't see anything that looks uh, different. And usually, you know, two drinks will do it. Oddly enough, sometimes the type of alcohol in some people will. Um hmm. Like one wine in particular, red wine will mess your HRV score. We're testing out white wine and some other stuff right now. I haven't noticed a pattern of one alcohol more than another one in terms of type. Um some of the clear alcohols seem to be not as bad. Just purely anecdotal. Um, Another part about alcohol that's interesting too is if the study looks at like harm to self or potentially also harm to others. So a study actually in the Lancet from 2010 from David Nutt, he did this. It's a drug harms in the UK multi-center decision analysis, and they were looking at well, what is the potential harm to others and society and things of that nature and they actually ranked out of all drugs, they ranked alcohol as number one. Oh. <laughs> actually hmm. Above heroin and oddly enough, crack cocaine. Wow. Because of the altercations, and people would drink a large amount, the altercations and other things that they would get into. Of promptly got fired as the person in charge of Doug Research in the UK because they hated that, <laughs> that answer. <laughs> um, but if anyone's, you know, worked at a bar or spent time in a bar between midnight and two a m
0: yeah kind of makes sense <laughs> right that's right yeah the epidemiology stuff and again no one is saying right saturated fat has no downside or right. alcohol has no downside or NSAIDs have no downside, but to me it's like anything else in life it's a calculated risk and a decision it's a it's it's a you know pros and cons decision that we all make yeah you know um yeah, but it's, am I willing to give up all alcohol because researchers in a premier journal like the Lancet are saying, you know, zero is best? No, I'm not. You know, at my stage, like, let's face it, I tell young athletes this all the time. Alcohol is just not part of a training diet, right? So, if you're in the middle of a season, I actually agree with a lot of the sports teams where they have a no alcohol policy. There's not much it's going to do for you. You know, uh, as part as strictly as part of a training diet. Um, but having said that, you know, when, it, when you're on a relaxation part of your diet, maybe your training load's a little lighter or, like, I'm at a stage in my actual career where I'm going to enjoy life here and there. And if that means eating real butter or some coconut oil, I love coconut, actually, taste-wise, or having a drink or even two or three. Uh, like Phil said, I don't do that every day. I mean, I don't even think I do that every week. But I'm not gonna feel panicked when I do. You know. It's just a balance. Yeah.
2: Especially younger adults in general have a uh, harder time regulating behavior, especially related to alcohol. That doesn't mean all of them. That just means in general compared to older adults too.
0: It's true. I mean, what are we doing? We're giving our salty veteran, you know, out, outlook on this stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you've been around the block a few times and you're like, well, you can mitigate some of these risks by just not overdoing it. And this is what not overdoing it means, you know, stuff like that. One last thing. Cause I know we're over and Phil's um, off to the gym. Um, on gluten, I promise I would mention something. This is from the Institute of food technologists IFT.org research targets, wheats, quote unquote, bad gluten. So gluten makes up three quarters of the, of the protein. Like we were talking about in wheat products like pasta, you know, um, and we know that gluten can cause intestinal damage and even cardiovascular problems for people with celiac disease, and maybe even people that don't have celiac disease. There could be some level, like subclinical kinds of issues. Uh, and I'm I'm okay. I, I understand that. Um, this is what's neat about this little news bit, though. Not all gluten in wheat is con, is considered equal. So researchers are trying to leave in the less offensive parts of the gluten protein. So you can get what you want out of the dough, you know, because that's what makes it rise and, you know, and have, well, have structure that is, and that that kind of thing. And then remove some of the the problematic parts. So basically there's three main forms of gluten in wheat that they explain in this IFT paper. Uh, According to Raj Ketkar, K-E-T-K-A-R, President and CEO of Arcadia Biosciences. So he says, high molecular weight glutenins are about up to ten percent, five to ten percent of total gluten. They're very important for giving that strength and elasticity to dough. So having good, you know, um, baked products. Low molecular weight glutenins are up twenty-five uh, to thirty percent or so of gluten in wheat. Also important for processing dough. The third category, though, and Mike, you and I know this, um, gliadin right gliadin is 60 to 70% of wheat's gluten and that's what causes that um sort of allergic immune adverse response this quote unquote bad gluten is that gliadin portion of the protein and essentially what they've done is reduced uh 75% of that gliadin so they're leaving in some of the high molecular weight uh glutenins or even lower ones and they're trying to remove just that offensive protein that's causing the problems either in celiac patients or even you know the gen pop who might have some subclinical issues with this what we've done explains ketcar is reduced 75 percent of the allergic glutens so that might be something that catches on people can look for in the future too because gluten is one of those things that confuses the heck out of people you know you walk into a health food store we have one here in town literally like if you look left Low-carb food items that have a lot of gluten. Like if you're going to go buy low-carb bread, oftentimes there's quite a bit of gluten in that stuff. And then you look right, and it's the gluten-free stuff, right? And if anybody even begins reading labels, they're going to be like, well, these labels say low-carb and high-gluten is good. These labels say no gluten is good. Which is it? Is gluten good or bad? So I think these guys are trying to define, you know, let's target that particular gliadin uh, protein and – Reduce it so we can still have um, delicious baked goods, um, you know, and, and carbohydrate kinds of products, and not not trigger any of these symptoms. Um, any thoughts on gluten, Mike? From you? Uh
2: yeah. I mean, in general, I agree. I mean, I if you look at the data, there's a pretty cool review in uh, JAMA from last year. It's public access. Uh, celiac disease, non-celiac gluten sensitivity: a review. Uh, the author's last name is Leonard. Um, and they did a pretty good job of kind of breaking it down for people who want more information. In practice, I, I don't know. I've just seen clients who appear to have a gluten sensitivity. Uh, my wife is one of them. So we've, you know, tested her on different types of gluten, and I've even, I don't know, she's she's not listening to this right now, but <laughs> snuck it into her food and taking it out <laughs> just to see what happens. Also, oh my,
0: experimenting <laughs> uh, on your spouse. Shame on you.
2: Yeah, well, a little wipey experiments. Right. Probably be surprised by that. But um, in her case, like mood sensitivity and stuff is dramatically changed like that day and the next day. Um, I've had some clients just take it out and they feel a lot better, even though self-report, I can't see any other change in their data. So I think most people are probably not as sensitive to it as they think, and there's some interesting data on that with placebo effect and things of that nature. Um, but I have seen some people where you know we played around with it off and on for you know, my my wife's case for man probably eight years now, and it seems to be something there. So I I tell people I'm like ah eh, I wouldn't be afraid of it, but just you know test it out on yourself, you know see how you feel and and kind of go from there. Right on.
0: Yeah, I if think it's celiac,
2: you'll definitely know if you're celiacs. You don't have to oh, worry right. about that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. It's it gets way overblown. You know we've all seen those. Videos. They'll interview people, fitness-minded people that are on gluten-free diets, and of course, when you go gluten-free, you tend to eat less bread and pasta and a lot of carbohydrates. So your calorie intake goes down a lot of times. And you know, if you're eating like green leafies instead, uh, and uh, so many times people they can't even they're so passionate about the gluten-free thing and they can't even tell you like the the reporter will say, uh, why do you do it? And they can't even really tell you. Oh, it's just bad, you know. <laughs> And, yeah, and like you said, it's uh, – uh, I've actually looked. It's a small single-digit percentage of the population, um, last I looked at least, that was actually diagnosed like celiac. And obviously, like you said, those people, uh, they, they totally need it. They probably love this low-gluten craze because, you know, from rice checks to God knows what – I mean, a lot of things have – whole grocery sections you know in the aisles of the grocery store, uh, gluten-free – And those people must be loving it because they have more options now, you know. But a lot of people, they don't even know why they're avoiding it. Um, Yeah. And, I mean, in my household, uh, Kelly and I, we do reduce the amount of pasta and that kind of stuff we eat. We're not trying to avoid gluten specifically, just not too many carbs. I mean, we're middle-aged, you know. And yet that does remove a fair amount of gluten, you know, when you don't eat a lot of bread and pasta. So it depends if you're young and, you know, you need the – the carb calories i i am sort of on a kick though more potatoes and rice i think they're very clean starches you know I, I that's a really loaded word i know but um a little bit less to deal with as far as this other you know gluten issue uh i eat a lot of oats though it's worth noting though that corn gluten and oat gluten are different uh in a lot of ways and in some guidelines um not really as much, nearly as much of a concern, right, as something like wheat, barley, whatever, so. Yeah.
2: I'm the same way. I mean, I use a lot more white rice now, potatoes, and the reality is if I'm, you know, doing nutrition stuff with clients, those are probably the ones I'm going to go to. You know, just because I know they're inexpensive, they're easy to get, they have some other benefits, and you know, if they had any other sort of weird gluten stuff that I don't know about, eh, we're probably reducing it, and you know, if it's something they want to test out in the future, then it's you know, we'll test it out, you know, from there.
0: Yep. All right, everyone, so there you have it. I didn't want to poo-poo everything that's in the news, but I do think there's this gut reaction, and to your point, Mike, I think you said it best. People gravitate toward negative things like warnings, you know, that balk the trends and but things like coconut and gluten, they you know, good, bad. Uh, you know it can get very confusing so at least there's some info you know on and and some opinions right on what we think about a lot of this stuff from alcohol to whatever so all these supposed no-nos coming out of nowhere and it, like everything i would think it's it's a it's a calculated risk
2: yeah and last point too if you want to get super confusing you could argue that maybe alcohol and other things are a little bit of a hormetic stressor maybe they stress your body just a little bit and make you possibly better for it if it's a certain amount and under a threshold and blah blah blah
0: (laughs) right yeah like that mild adaptation like they say living with a dog is going to present you certain challenge immune challenges and it's almost certainly good you know stuff like that so all right uh well we'll call it a week so thanks man thank you see you everybody